Bernard mentioned uh, being a bit of a natural cynic, I have strong reservations about the use of any terms such as legend. The reason is very simple. It can sometimes infer that the person is in some way or other past it and that what they achieved is rooted so far back in the midst of time that nobody can actually remember any of it and particularly whether any of it is actually still relevant or not. So with that caveat planted firmly in your minds, um, let me see if I can give you some very personal reflections and perspectives on my time in the mining world. The title of this section in the agenda is Spanning the Divide in the sense that I'm very much a poacher term gamekeeper or the other way around, depending on which way you, you, you look at it. I initially spent 10 years as a sell side analyst before joining US-based firm Capital Group, where for over 15 years, I was responsible for a lot of our investments globally in the metals and mining industry. That time at Capital Group spanned the whole decade-long China-led commodity boom. And during that period, I would literally be spending over 50% of my time traveling around the world, which meant that I would be going through a passport in typically less than three years. And I can tell you, when your passport is littered with visas from the likes of Russia, the DRC, China, Kazakhstan, India, and of course, lots from South Africa, just to mention a few, it meant that sometimes going through U.S. immigration could become a rather interesting exercise as they perused all the different visas. And then seven years ago, I made the move to what some people have described to me as the dark side and took on several board positions, the most prominent one in a South African context being Anglo-American PLC. Now, before I start, let me just make two quick points about my background. And the first one is that I pretty much fell into mining by accident. There was no master career plan at work here. And it was actually originally linked to a plan to move to live permanently in Peru and South America. Now, that was back in the 1980s when a lot of you may remember Peru was facing a sustained terrorist campaign by Sendero Luminoso, or the Shining Path in English, who practiced what can only be described as a nihilistic version of Stone Age socialism. And after one particularly unpleasant experience over a new year, when I came very close to being shot by the Peruvian army near Arequipa in the south of the country, I decided that having grown up with one long-running terrorist campaign in Northern Ireland, I really didn't need a second one. And so I decided to, to remain in London. Uh, the, the second point I would make, as, as anyone who knows me can attest, and certainly Bernard can, my technical knowledge of mining would just about struggle to fill up the back of a postage stamp. I have to say it was it is with no small measure of incredulity on my part that I have somehow or other been able to sustain a career in an industry where my technical knowledge of it could politely be described as limited. And so with that, as the backdrop and having given you suitable health warning, what I was proposing to do is spend the next 10 or 15 minutes briefly discussing two sets of issues. First one, and this comes from the background of having been an analyst and investor, and then in more last few years, a, a board director. And the first one is, what is it that companies should know about investors? And then the second issue in turn is, what is it that investors should know about companies? Now, let's start with what is it that companies should know about investors. And I'm going to highlight three areas here. 
The first one is, in, for those in case you haven't figured it out already, analysts and investors can be a pretty cynical bunch and they're not easily fooled. Now, this was brought home to me when years ago, having just joined the broking firm Lang & Cruikshank in London as an aspiring young analyst, I was taken to one side by my boss, the head of research. He was a very experienced and very highly regarded analyst covering the building and construction sector. And he gave me three pieces of advice that I have never forgotten. The first one was learn to read upside down. And if there are any CFOs in the audience, I would urge you to think about how many times you may have unwittingly been caught out by that one. The second piece of advice was um, a bit more fundamental, and it was just remember your job as an analyst is not to figure out whether management are lying. Your job is simply to figure out the extent to which they are lying, and there is a subtle difference between the two. I won't dwell on that one for, for obvious reasons, as it could be maybe become a bit self-incriminating. Um, and then finally, he said to me that if I plan to work in the city in London for a long time, I would almost definitely encounter people in different positions down the road. So his third piece of advice was never burn your bridges. And of the three, that is one that I've certainly tried to adhere to over the years. Now, the second, second area is going to uh, talk about in terms of what companies need to know about investors is that there's actually no one single homogeneous entity called the shareholder. And I think one of the hardest challenges facing companies today is trying to disentangle what the message from shareholders really is, when you can often be dealing with a large number of disparate entities ranging from in passive funds where the investment is driven solely by an index weighting to activist hedge funds where the investment thesis can be short-term, very event-driven, right through to long-only funds, active managers like Capital Group at the other extreme whose investment horizon can be much longer. And I think that one of the real skills of a good management and IR team is knowing how to sift what can seem like and actually often are contradictory messages and advice and then knowing which ones to listen to. That can pose some very serious challenges. Now, ultimately, when it comes to the board who is thinking in terms of a time frame spanning 10 or 20 years ahead, the board actually has to take the decisions that it feels are in the best long-term interests of the company and the shareholders. And marrying those competing interests is not necessarily at times the easiest, uh, easiest of issues. The third point uh, area is that for the mining industry to attract generalist investors, it really needs to speak their language. And I think what I've observed is that the diminished role of specialist sector funds means that the industry inevitably has to appeal much more to generalist investors. This is particularly the case in gold. And as I say, that requires talking their language. For too long, the mining industry seemed to think that there was something special about it. And so amidst all the discussion about technical metrics, cash costs, production growth, etc., often concepts such as return on capital, free cash flow and dividends would often barely rate a mention. The gold industry, I have to say, was invariably the biggest culprit. Uh, there's a great chart that I used to keep updated, which showed the gold price in one axis, operating cash flow and capital expenditure for the industry in the other axis. 
And as sure as night follows day, the three lines on that chart would just follow each other almost in lockstep with the industry in a seemingly inexorable mission to spend every dollar of cash flow that it earned. Now, thankfully, that, is, that has changed. And companies like Newmont really deserve credit for leading the way on dividends in particular. So we finally, we've moved away from a business model that in the case of gold seemed to be based on what I viewed as an ultimately unsustainable proposition to investors that consisted of you hand us over your money and you get none of it back. Now let's, let's move on to the second issue. What is it that investors should know about companies? And again, there are three areas that I would like to highlight here. I think, first of all, the real world is a lot more complex than an earnings model. And so the next time that you as an analyst or investor are sitting with the CEO and you're berating him or her for not doing that restructuring or acquisition move that you think makes obvious sense, just bear in mind that unbeknownst to you, that very same CEO by that point could well have been working on that initiative behind the scenes for maybe 12 months or more. They most likely will have been having to navigate their way through a whole series of different entities, including central government, local government, regulators, and trade unions, just to name a few. And I can tell you that all takes time and it requires a lot of patience. Second area I would mention is that uh, um, beware of a new CEO waving a magic wand and promising an instantaneous turnaround. Um, you should, I'd say, you should always be wary if a new CEO comes in promising a miraculous turnaround solution. If you have a CEO sit down and tell you that they will restructure that company in less than 12 months, I can tell you they're, they're either lying or they're delusional or both. It can easily take a year for a new CEO to settle in and really understand what is required of the company that they've just taken in charge of. Anglo-American is probably a good case study. If you remember in his early days as the new, then new CEO, Mark Kudafani faced criticism for not moving fast enough. You don't hear any of that criticism now, as people have realized that it was during those first couple of years of his tenure that the foundations were steadily being laid for the dramatic improvements in operational performance that you've seen subsequently. And then thirdly, I would say you should always be on the, the alert for any early signs of hubris. The example that I always use to illustrate this is what I used to call the four S's. And what this says is that in any company announcement on any investment or acquisition, if you see the words strategic, synergies, and shareholder value in close proximity to each other, then you should immediately follow up with the fourth S, which is sell. And if you think I'm joking, let me just read for you from the press release when Vale acquired Inco back in 2006. That press release described the deal as, quote unquote, a unique opportunity to create shareholder value, and quote unquote, we expect the acquisition to add significant value to our shareholders. Um, I will leave you to figure out how much value is created in reality as a result of that deal. But finally, to close, let me just give you a few personal perspectives on the whole subject of ESG, which is probably the most important issue that the industry is going to have to deal with over the coming years. In a world which is now focused on the challenges of climate change, sustainability, and decarbonization, it should come as absolutely no surprise that ESG, as it is now called, has assumed such prominence.
and has very much become flavor of the month, dare I say. And let me just maybe highlight three comments. I think the first one is that ESG is simply one facet of the process of embracing sustainability and should not be viewed as a box ticking exercise. As I said, it's not something that should be placed in a separate category of its own. In my view, if it is to be treated seriously, it should become really ingrained in a company's culture and DNA. It should be central to a company's purpose statement, and it should be viewed as part and parcel of how you run a company. Society today demands that the mining industry fully embrace sustainability in a very genuine fashion, and ESG is one facet of that. Second point is that aside from the societal implications, investors have increasingly figured out that ESG matters from a financial perspective and that it is vital to get it right. There was always the tendency to view ESG as something that encompassed the, what I call the soft issues. But these soft issues have become the hard issues. And as you look at the number of mining projects that are unapproved, delayed or suspended because of environmental and mental or community issues, then it's clear that there can be a very substantial monetary cost if you get these issues wrong. And that's even before considering the fallout from the appalling tragedy surrounding the Rumaginho tailings dam collapse in Brazil and the controversy over Rio Tinto's destruction of an ancient Aboriginal heritage site at Jukan Gorge in Western Australia. Neither Brumaginho nor Jukan Gorge should have happened. And as the subsequent investigations have shown, the fact that they did happen reflected failures of governance around environmental and social issues, which should never have been allowed to, to happen. And then thirdly, more broadly, so ESG is the manifestation of the inexorable trend towards sustainable investing. And it, a lot of attention is rightly given to the massive rise in importance of dedicated ESG investment mandates. But I think what you're also seeing is a broader mindset shift within investment institutions. I would urge you to take a look at the BlackRock website in particular, where they lay out very clearly the way in which sustainability considerations are now incorporated into their investment process. More fundamentally, though, I think you're seeing the emergence of a younger generation within these investment institutions who don't view ESG as being separate and distinct from the investment process, but if view the two as being integrated. In other words, they don't view sustainability as being something that is at the expense of investment returns. And that, in my view, is actually very positive and very important.